Um, so we're still in our superheroes series. We're moving through the Old Testament. Uh, we've covered, I think, Abraham, and uh, we've covered, uh, I think we covered um, Joseph last month, and we talked about how Joseph didn't throw in the towel on his brothers when he could have just quit on them. Uh, he could have turned his back on them, but God did not throw in the towel on him, and so he was compelled and moved to say, when it's time for me to do the same for my brothers, I'm not going to do that for them. And so Andrew preached wonderfully on Joseph last month. Tonight I'm going to be preaching the first part, kind of a Moses 1.0, so to speak. Andrew's going to follow up next month with Moses 2.0. So I just gave you your title. There it is. Uh, and we're talking tonight about Exodus 3, 1 through 10, where Moses has this encounter with God in the desert. So we're in Exodus 3. We're going to look really at 1 through 9, and then Andrew's going to kind of piggyback uh, verse 10, and he's going to run with that next month. So let me go ahead. If you're taking notes or if you're jotting in your Bible or you, like, press the screen and highlight and do all, whatever you got to do, let me give you the big idea so that if you check out in the next three minutes, at least you'll get this before you go home. Okay? I know your bellies are full and, like, you know, nap time's coming. So let me give you this. Um, here's what we're going to see tonight in Exodus 3, 1 through 10. God reveals himself to his people because his heart is for his people. All right, that sounds kind of quick and catchy and lots of prepositional phrases, but listen to it. God reveals himself to you because his heart is for you. He loves you, and so he therefore chooses to come down and reveal himself to you. So we're going to walk through Exodus 3, 1 through 10, and we're going to see this big idea that just keeps coming up everywhere, 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 and we're going to call it out and spotlight it. So verse 1, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness, and he came to Horeb. Now when you see that, uh, you kind of like, well, why is Horeb the mountain of God? Horeb is basically another name for Mount Sinai. So everything in Moses' future that's getting ready to happen, if this was present tense, it happens right at the mountain that Moses is at the base of. All right, And I, I don't think that's uh, unintentional. Moses is at the bottom of this mountain, and God is going to lead him up to this place. Is he ready to be there yet? No. But when God encounters Moses, and Moses walks away changed, God takes him up on the mountain. Could Moses have gotten there by himself? Maybe, but it wouldn't have been the same. So Moses is at the base of Mount Horeb, the mountain of God, Mount Sinai. And it says, uh, it says that he was there at the base. In Exodus 3, we meet Moses in a pretty humble situation. Moses is not where he once was in his life in the king's court in Egypt. He's working as a shepherd for his father-in-law. Now, um, I don't know if you've ever like, just looked across the pages of Scripture and noticed, but there are a lot of shepherds that God chooses to use. But Moses was in a unique situation. He's working for who? His father-in-law. He's working for his father-in-law. Now, I don't know your family dynamic, um, but depending on your family dynamic, that's a really good thing, all right? Or that's a uh, not-so-good thing, all right? But he's working for his father-in-law. He's a shepherd. He's tending sheep, and he's wandered out to the back part of a desert a long way from where he was in the king's court in Pharaoh's throne, Okay, so it's this backdrop of his life, uh, how he seems to have fallen off the face of the map, and nobody can find this guy, Moses, when at one point he was a part of the royal family, uh, that makes this encounter dramatic, but for you and I, here's what it does. It makes it instructive. So if we'll pay attention, incline our ear, incline our heart, we're going to see some things from Moses' example that we can kind of jot down and go home and say, okay, God, apply this into my heart. 
So let me give you a quick sketch of Exodus 1 and 2. It, the first 40 years is kind of wrapped up in uh, Exodus 1 and 2. And then Exodus 3 is like the second 40 years of Moses' life. So Exodus 1, at the beginning of the book, Joseph has died. The guy Andrew preached about last month. Joseph has died, all right? And when Joseph dies, Joseph had a great relationship with the Pharaoh, and he was, of course, an Israelite. So when, the, when Joseph dies, the new king comes to power in Egypt. And when the new king comes to power in Egypt, Israel is just multiplying. They're reproducing like rabbits. I mean, they're just everywhere. They're just like, like the whack-a-mole game. They're just popping up everywhere. Well, the, the new king of Egypt gets threatened because he starts to think, if they're growing at this kind of rate, what are they going to do to my people? They're going to take them over. They're going to take him over, and soon it's not going to be Egypt. It's going to be whatever their people are called. And so he gives this order for all the Hebrew midwives to kill every baby boy that is a Hebrew boy. When he's born on the birth stool, he says, basically, we're going to have a monster abortion clinic, and we're going to kill all of the babies that are part of these Hebrew families because we want to extinguish this population. And so from this point forward... He's basically going to be cutting down his enemies, what he perceives to be his enemies. So in Exodus 2, this is the scene, this is the circumstance that Moses is born into. So by a strange turn of events, he's born, his mom places him in a basket, and, and he goes floating down the river. Well, he kind of winds up in this little eddy, and he's sitting there in this basket, you know, like just a couple months old. And, uh, and the Pharaoh's daughter comes down, and she decides it's time for a bath. So her and her assistants are hanging around the edge of the Nile, and one of them discovers this little baby, a little Hebrew baby boy that should have been killed, and she takes him to be her own baby. She basically adopts him into the royal family, and she names him Moses, meaning, I drew him up out of the water. No coincidence that God draws the people of Israel up out of the waters. And in the Old Testament, you'll see, it says repeatedly in the book of Psalms, he drew me up out of the waters. And so that's, Moses' name is pointing to even what's going to happen with God's people here. And so he spends the first 40 years of his life enjoying all the lavish lifestyle of someone who is connected to the most powerful man on the planet. And then everything goes wrong. At about age 39 or 40, Moses is hanging out one day. And he's just kind of looking out across, and he sees these guys fighting. And he discovers that these two guys are fighting, and this Egyptian is beating on his friend. And so he takes the Egyptian and just kind of whoops him, puts him in the headlock, and you know, kind of kung fus this Egyptian and buries him in the sand. And he thinks, oh my goodness, what have I done? Uh, I'm going to be found out. And so the next day they say, are you going to kill him like you killed one of our guys? And Moses goes, oh man, they know about that. They know about it, so what am I going to do? I've got to leave. So everything that he knew for 40 years, Moses now has to take off. He packs his bags overnight, and he flees to where? To Midian. He basically heads out to, uh, to the desert. And so now in Exodus 3, you find Moses at the end of another 40 years. So he's 80 years old, and he's sunk to the point of having become a murderous fugitive hiding out in the desert with the sand people from Star Wars, all right, and looking like he's going nowhere. All right, I love the movie Star Wars, and when I read this, I cannot help but picture the weird sand people. So verse 2, it says, The angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside. Do you guys know Moses was a volunteer fireman, by the way? Sorry. All right. I had to throw that in there. Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, while the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. 
And Moses said, here I am. So a couple of things we need to stop and take note of, maybe jot down is this. The first one is if you look across Scripture, it is fascinating to note how many people God called out of lowly, humble circumstances, and he raises them up to use them for his purpose. God delights in the underdog. God delights in the underdog. He loves to take someone who has no chance, the guy who was going to get picked last in the draft or get put on the NBDL team and maybe get cut from that team and put them on the starting five NBA team for the Western Conference semis. I mean, that's just how God works. He's the God of the underdog. You look at Abraham. All right, Abraham, you got Abraham and Sarah, like basically two nursing home residents at the end of the hall, and it looks like everything's over for them. And so everybody's just kind of waiting, you know, till they just kind of pass on. And God says, nope, I'm going to give you a kid, even though you really can't have kids. And through this kid, another kid's going to come, and his name's going to be Jesus. And he's going to save the world. These were people at the end of their life. God calls Gideon, who Jerry preached on this past Sunday. Gideon, as Adrian helped me uh, just, just think about this so wonderfully, Gideon was the Rudy of the Old Testament. I mean, if there was a guy who had no shot of making the team, much less getting on the field, it was Gideon. In fact, when God found Gideon, where was Gideon at? He was in a hole. He was in a hole. Why? He was doing his chores in the hole because he was afraid the Midianites were going to come steal his chores. Like, that's pretty low. All right? Gideon was down in a hole, and he's the root of the Old Testament, and God calls him out of the hole, and he says, you're not going to be Rudy anymore. You're not going to wash the jock straps. You're going to be the QB on the team, and you're going to lead the team to victory. And Gideon goes, me? And he's like, no, God, you've got to prove this thing. And God's like, okay, fine. All right? That's who God calls. If you look at the New Testament, who did God call for a babysitter when he needed somebody to take care of his one and only son, his only begotten son? He called an unwed teenage mother. Like if you have kids or you've raised kids, I don't know what your standards are for having a babysitter. But I mean, that's just not, you know, I'm a little uncomfortable with that if I'm like have the son of God. Okay. But he's going to send his son, perfect and unstained, who's been face-to-face with him for all eternity down to earth. And he's like, look, that's who I'm picking to be the babysitter for Jesus for his first 12 or 14 years or whatever. Notice even where the fire of the Lord appeared in Exodus 3. Did the fire appear in a tall, tall, regal, stately cedar tree, like the picture of nobility in that day? No. Where did the fire appear from God? In a small, low, thorny bush, good for nothing, on the backside of a desert. You think that was an accident? I mean, do you think God was like, oops, I didn't mean to set that on fire. I I was kind of aiming for that one. No. No, God picked that bush because he knew that that Moses, who was on the backside of his life, was going to come by and see this thorny little bush and say, Moses probably thinks, gosh, that's a lot like me. That's a whole lot like me. No, he chose the bush because God chooses the weak things of this world to do what? Shame the strong. Even Moses at this low point could be chosen and used by the God of the underdog. I want to put it like this, maybe flip it around. Maybe you're a yard sailor. Anybody a yard sailor in here? All right, one. All right, three. Okay, nobody wants to admit it. Okay, so my aunt growing up, I would always go stay over at my aunt and uncle's house. And for some reason, when I was like between the ages of 8 and 12, I thought it was awesome to go yard sailing. 
And my aunt would look up all in the classifieds, all the yard sales throughout Chapel Hill and Carborough and everywhere she lived. And she had like a map, you know, and I didn't understand how this worked. I just wanted to go to the Sunrise Biscuit Kitchen. And if we made it there, I was good. I didn't care where we went, you know, I was good. All right, so we go to Sunrise Biscuit Kitchen, stop one, and then after that it was like yard sale, yard sale, yard sale, yards. And her big deal was she loved to find that one item that 11.30 in the morning got here and four hours worth people had been passing up. And she would take that one item and bring it home. And she had a, a weird, eclectic blend of random stuff at her house. Like I would just walk through all the time and like look at it. I'd hide things sometimes just to see if she could find it, you know? Like it was just it was just crazy like that. I think God, if God were a shopper, I think God would shop at yard sales. I don't think God would go to Banana Republic. I don't think God would go to any name brand store out there that you might shop at, any American Eagle. I don't think he's going to go to Best Buy. I don't think he's going to anything like He's not going to go to even the Goodwill or God's Country or whatever it is you have wherever you live. God's going to go to the yard sale on the Saturday morning, and he's going to let everybody pick over everything that's out there, and he's going to wait and hang back. And there's that one item over there on the blanket in the corner that they've been marking down and marking down, and they're thinking, we'll give you money if you take it home. All right? And God says, I want that one. I want that one. Because that's how God is. He comes along and he finds the one thing that nobody else wanted. He finds the one person that feels forgotten or cast out or marginalized or I don't belong at this lunch table or I can't run with that social crowd. And he says, I'm going to take you and I'm going to do something through you that the rest of everybody else goes, wow, he didn't do that. Somebody else did that. That's what God does. Because if he chooses the best and brightest, guess who gets the glory? The best and the brightest. But when God picks the bottom dweller and God does something with the bottom dweller, nobody looks at the bottom dweller and goes, wow, that was unreal. They look at God and they go, wow, you're unreal. And that's what God wants. He's the God of the yard sale. And this is the same God that shows up to Moses in this desert and he's revealing himself to Moses. Why? He reveals his heart to us because why? His heart is for us. And so he calls this guy Moses and he says, I'm going to take and redirect your life and I'm going to like a Rubik's Cube just spin you around, man. You're not going to know which side is up. You can't find the bubbles like you're going to be lost. And I'm going to repurpose your life for something great, for my glory, for the people that I love. See, what Moses missed was this. This wasn't just Israel's deliverance and Israel's redemption. This is the first chapter in the new biography on Moses' life. This is when they turn the page and you go, oh man, this thing's taking a new direction. I didn't see that coming. He's about to be thrust into a role that completely intimidates him, paralyzes him, probably kept him up at night. And the only way he's going to be able to make it through is if he figures out quick, fast, and in a hurry, I've got to lean on that God who can set a bush on fire but not burn it down. Warren Wiersbe points out that the bush points to God's glory and God's power because fire usually consumes anything it touches, but not this fire. This fire reminded Moses of the unparalleled power and the unmatched glory of this God who was calling him. So for Moses, the lesson was clear. If I'm going to have any chance of success, if I'm going to pass this test at all, God's going to have to take the test for me. Not just be my tutor and leave me on my own. God's going to have to do this thing for me. So I want to make an important point. This is not original, what I'm about to say. But I want to make an important point to you tonight. If you are struggling right now, if you're going through something difficult, if you're walking through what feels like a desert in your life, I want to say this to you. Moses 
saw more of God in the desert than he ever did in the king's court. Moses saw more of God in the desert than he ever did in the king's court. When did life really get rolling? In the last part of the second phase of his life. I mean, this guy was born to be Israel's deliverer, and God didn't send him the email or the text or the whatever until age 80. Moses should have been kicked back in the recliner, right? He should have been getting the Social Security check in the mail, watching the prices ride around 11 o'clock and eating some chicken noodle soup because he can't chew anything else. And God's like, no, I'm sending you out, and I got a big job for you. So you think God's forgotten you? You think God's left you out? You think he's over in some other room, the great physician, and he's tending to some other patient, and he forgot about you in the waiting room? Scriptures are clear on this one. And I'm preaching to myself as much as anyone tonight. God works in the waiting room of your life. God works in the waiting rooms of your life. Moses was in the waiting room for 40 years in what seemed like a place that he was going nowhere. You think his back was stiff and sore from sitting around? I'd say so. But this is the pattern we see in Scripture. How long did Jesus wait before he took off on a world-changing ministry? He waited 30 years, and he only spent three years doing it. What about the Apostle Paul? The Apostle Paul spent 17 years. If you track the cross-references in the New Testament, he spent 17 years in training. Go back to the Old Testament. What about Noah? How old was Noah? How old was Noah when God called him to build a boat? Noah goes to the mailbox one day at age 480, pulls down the mailbox lid, pulls out these blueprint plans and goes, hmm, what are these? And he opens them up and he discovers, oh, God wants me to build a boat and I'm almost 500. Great. You think God's in a hurry? No. You think you, you might oversleep your alarm. You might hit the snooze bar on life. You might miss some things. But the scripture says God never sleeps. God never slumbers. He doesn't miss a thing. He's got you exactly where he wants you, and you are right in the middle of his purpose for your life. So Moses decides, like I said a little bit earlier, kind of corny. Moses flips on the volunteer fireman light, jumps in his truck and rolls over, and he's like, I'm going to see what's going on with this bush and check things out. This is my uh, my little precinct or whatever. So verse 5, God says, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place you're standing is what kind of ground? It's holy ground. And he said, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses did what? He hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Let me ask you a question. Why in the world would God appear to Moses, but then after he appears and does this amazing sight with the bush, tell Moses, don't come any closer. Well, I mean, like, that's like cooking a really incredible meal, having company over, and then they sit down and they pick up their fork and they salt and pepper stuff, and then they go, oh, nope, don't eat. I just want you to look at it a while. Right? Moses is like, what do you mean don't come any close? No, Moses understood. When you're looking in a bush on fire and it's not burning up and that bush is talking back to you, like you understand somebody bigger and better and better than you is dealing with you, you just need to be quiet. Right? The answer is this. God's holiness is what kept Moses from coming any closer. God's holiness. That means this. He's so perfect, so unstained, and so separate from the common things of this world that Moses is not even allowed or able or even want to draw near to this God. He's so holy, and Moses is so unrighteous. And he's so unstained, and Moses is covered with food stains. 
All right? He's so perfect and unblemished, and Moses is just a wreck. And he knows it. And he knows, I can't come near to this God because, man, something bad's going to happen. In verse 5, God says, don't come near because I'm holy. So what about you? I mean, you're not Moses. You didn't get the Ten Commandments. Like, you didn't hit a rock and water come out. You didn't part seas. If Moses can't come near, what about you? What about me? Hebrews 6, 19 and 20 says this. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Hebrews 4, 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. You see, because what Jesus won for you at the cross, you now can come near to God. Moses didn't have that mediator. Moses was going to become that mediator, but he was going to be an imperfect mediator. Jesus was going to come down, and he was going to be the perfect mediator between God and man. So that Hebrews says, now you and I with all of our junk and all of our stains, and we're the last one on the, on the carpet back, or the, the rug back here to get picked up at the yard sale, we can come near. And I'm going to push it a little bit further. It's like this. We couldn't get into the gate of the stadium. All right? And now Jesus bought the stadium. And so it's not, you don't just get through the front gate anymore. You're invited into the skybox to enjoy all the privileges that belong to being the owner's kid. It's as if this is if the owner of the stadium invited you because he adopted you, said, Come on, you're with me. And they see you, and they see you rolling in the skybox, like, oh, that's God's kid. Let him go. He's good, man. He can eat anything he wants. This place is his because it's his dad's. We are invited in with that kind of never-ending open access to the Father because through Jesus, God revealed himself to us because his heart is what? For us. So what's this shoe thing all about? Like, am I supposed to take my shoes off right now? What's this shoe thing all about? Why did Moses take his sandals off? This is Moses' confession of personal defilement and conscious unworthiness to stand in the presence of unspotted holiness. This is Moses bowing the knee, hitting the ground and saying, I don't belong in your presence. What did God say to him? The place you're standing is what kind of ground? Holy. Was there anything special about the sand? Not a thing. Same sand that was 100 yards over there. But God's presence showed up right here and something happened to that sand where God removed all the junk. And that whole place on the ground right there was holy ground because who was there? God was there. His presence makes it holy. When His Spirit comes to live in you, you know what you need to live out of? You need to realize when His Spirit comes to live in you, listen, you are holy. And you're like, no, I'm not. Yes, you are in one sense, and no, you're not. You're right in the other, right? We sin all the time. But when God says, this one's mine, Jesus died in this one's place, and I'm sending my Spirit down into His heart, guess what? You can't help but be holy if God's living in you. Say something. I mean, that's the truth. When God's living in us, we are holy because he is here. And where we are is holy because it's his place, it's his temple. So God's essential to requiring humility of Moses before he can serve him. Because the only way that you and I can be servants of God, of a holy God, is if we become a humble servant. You're not going to bring your resume and your credentials and your past accomplishment and your re reputation and roll it out on the scroll and show it to God and go, look, God, you need me on your team. Because you know what he's going to do? He's going to rip your little stuff up, toss it to the side, and say, nope, you're not ready to serve me. I heard a pastor say one time, before God can use a man greatly, he's got to crush him deeply. And Moses had been crushed. 
Now, albeit it was his own sin that led him to this place where he was crushed low, but Moses was at a place now where God was ready to say, I'm ready for that one, and I'm going to use him. Warren Wiersbe says this, Servants who know how to take off their shoes in humility can be used of God to walk in power. Servants who know how to take off their shoes in humility can be used of God to walk in power. You wonder why maybe there's no power in your Christian walk right now? It might be because pride's walking in your shoes. Might be need to be a little bit of crushing. Might be a little bit of, of, of humbling, like I've said before, digging out a spot in the dirt and sticking your nose in it and getting as low as you can and saying, okay, God, here I am. I can't get any lower. Clean me up. Cut out the pride. Do surgery on the heart because it needs to go. So how did Moses respond? He takes off his shoes and he hides his face. He hides his face. Fascinating response. All throughout the pages of Scripture, Old and New Testament, what happened to Elijah? What happened to Elijah when he came out of the cave and he heard the still small voice? What did he do? He took his coat and he wrapped his head up with his coat because he thought, oh my goodness, I'm in the presence of God. What did Isaiah do? When he saw his vision of the Lord high and lifted up on the throne, he was repulsed to the point of probably wanting to throw up over his own sin. God brought me to that point about a month ago. And I was sin sick for about three days. Couldn't stand it hard to look in the mirror. But at the same time, there was this weird lightness about my heart. There was this weird sense of like, I'm totally free from that old junk because God's just letting it go. I'm not holding on to it any longer. God just let it go in me. What about Peter in the boat? Jesus brings in this incredible catch of fish. Peter realizes I'm in the presence of something holy. And what does he do? In the act of submission, he hits his knees. In John chapter 18, right before Jesus is arrested, Jesus says, who are you looking for? They said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. What does he say? He says, I am. Now, if you know your Bible, you know he's talking about I am who I am. He says, I am that I am. And what happens? An entire company of soldiers cannot even stand on their feet. These are Roman soldiers. They're, they're, they're a lot tougher than me and you. All right? And they hit the ground flat on their backs because they were in the presence of God. J.C. Ryle in his book, Holiness, says this, wrote it in the 18th or 19th century, says this, I'm afraid that this entire subject of holiness is lost on us today for fear that others might judge us as too strict, too narrow, too legalistic. And I'm going to add to this. This is when people get big in our world and God gets small. When we lose sight of who we are called to follow, who we're called to be, who we are now that the Holy Spirit is living in our hearts, people get big and all of a sudden you can't see around the person in front of you when you're desiring their approval and God gets real small and you're like, God, where'd you go? I can't find you. It's because we've lost sight of the holiness of God. If we had a glimpse of the holiness of God, it's going to make the rest of all of us in this room just pale in comparison to that. We need desperately to recover that sense of holiness of how we view God. Our view of him is too low. 1 Peter 1 says, be holy. Why? Because I'm holy. If you're going to be mine and I've got you for my own possession, what does a kid do? A kid usually emulates, for better or worse, their dad. When we emulate God, what happens? It gets better. Hebrews 12, 14. Watch this. Strive. I put it in caps up here. Strive for holiness. For without it, not one of us, no one will see the Lord. 
This past Saturday on NBC, you probably watched the Kentucky Derby came on. Any, any Derby fans out there? All right. Carrie and I were kind of laughing about this because I, I watched three races if I can catch them a year, and I don't even know all their names. One of them's a Preakness, one of them's a Kentucky Derby, and what's the third one? What? Belmont Stakes, that's right. I don't even know. That's how, like, not of a horse fan I am, okay? But when that comes on, like, I'll shut everything down, and we pick somebody, and we listen for two hours to all the horses, where they came from, who their mama was, who the trainer was, all this stuff, and we're waiting for this thing to happen. And I've got my three-year-old, my five-year-old, and we're waiting for the gate, and I'm like, all right, boys, we're going to pull for that one. And one of them's name's Uncle Si. Well, my kid, you guys know this, my kid is an, is an Uncle Si nut. So he's looking for Uncle Si, and he can't figure out why Uncle Si is not coming out of this gate. And I'm like, son, he is. But it's a horse. And he's like, well, I don't understand. Just forget it. We'll talk about it later. All right? So the bell rings. The horses take off. And if you know anything about Kentucky Derby, it's a long track, right? Do they go out of the gate as hard as they can? No. Usually the riders, the jockeys kind of pull him back just a little bit. And then when they go around the second turn and they hit the back stretch, they dial it up just a little bit. And when they come around that last curve, what happens? It's full tilt boogie, right? I mean, they're getting it on. They're running hard as they can. They are striving for the finish line. Why? Because they want to finish first. If you and I would take an ounce of that effort that they're striving with and we would strive for holiness, our church, our community, our homes are going to look so different. But we're not striving. Our efforts toward holiness should look just like that. We need to recover this sense of God's holiness in our lives. Verse 7, the Lord says, I've seen the affliction of my people, my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and watch, I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them up out of that land to a good and a broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. Almost like God's leaning over the balcony of heaven, and he hears this noise, and he says, that's my people. I hear him. Watch this. I'm about to do something awesome. And he says, I've seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress him. So God says, I know how bad my kids are hurting. I see what's going on down there. I know the back-breaking labor that they're having to endure. And it breaks my heart to see my kids' hearts hurt. And he says, so that's why I'm here. Verse 8, I've come down to do what? Deliver them and bring them to a good and a broad land flowing with milk and honey. Let me ask you a question. How do you measure the grace in verse 8? How do, you, how do you measure an unquantifiable, like exorbitant amount of grace like this that God says, I'm not hanging out up in heaven and sending a substitute to go down and get them. I'm going down myself and I'm grabbing them and taking them out because if I don't, nobody will. And they're toast. God calls a murderous fugitive to be his man, and to lead him out just so that they'll know how good he is, just so that they'll know how much he loves them. Ephesians 2, 6 and 7 says this, God calls us and saves us by his grace, verse 7, so that in the eons, in the ages, in the, in the eternity to come, guess what? I can show them the immeasurable riches of my kindness and grace through Christ Jesus to those that I've saved. You know why he saves you? So he can show you for eternity how good he is. So if he's going to show you for eternity how good he is, why would we not take up the practice of enjoying how good he is here on this earth? Why are we satisfying ourselves with other things that I talked about a few weeks ago are bottomless cups and we're pouring everything we got into those and God says, no, pour it into me because I will satisfy you. I'll give you something you can't find on this earth. I fill you up. 
God reveals his heart to his people because his heart is for his people. Compare verse 8, where he says, I'm coming down, to Jesus' understanding of his life and mission. John 10.10, Jesus says this, I have come that they may have life and have it what? Abundantly. God's, God's best life now for you, okay? God's best life now for you really is a best life now if you are walking with Jesus Christ and it just gets better. It just gets better. Luke 19, today Jesus says salvation's come to this house for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus understood his whole mission as a rescue mission. He spent 30 years preparing and then he says, it's time, let's go. Romans 8, 2, the Apostle Paul says, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you what? Free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So the law you used to be under, you've been totally emancipated from it. You don't belong to it anymore. You are free. Galatians 5.1, for freedom, Christ has set you free. So let me ask you a very practical question. Whatever the sin is in your life that you're going back to, all right, whatever you think you're addicted to, whatever you think you're dependent on, let me ask you a question. Why in the world are we going back to the old well and drinking the sludgy water when there's eternal crystal clear water of life given to us through Christ Jesus? Why? Because we've lost sight of who God is. We've knocked him down to some grandpa in the sky that gives us good gifts. We need to recover the sense of who he is. Because when we see his holiness, his faithfulness, his compassion, his desire to deliver you, you will respond and I will respond with an overwhelming sense of a grateful heart and thanks to God. You just worship all the time. You just wake up worshiping. You go to bed worshiping. You come in here and your, your worship is not a little flicker of a flame. It's not a match. It's a bonfire. Why? Because, man, I can't get enough of this guy that's delivered me. If you come in here and you're like, man, this is just flat. Music ain't doing nothing for me. Tired of the little dude up on the stage raising his hands all crazy and yelling about stuff. If you come in here and you're like, man, communion don't mean nothing. And I don't care nothing about prayer. I would say this. You probably have lost sight of who God is. He hasn't lost you. He has not forgotten about you. He knows where you're at. But maybe you need to turn around and say, God, where are you? Show me your face. Show me your heart. The theme of deliverance is all over. It's spilled all over the pages of Scripture. I got a new King James Bible that I bought one time. I was so excited about it. Preached last May, actually. First Wednesday in May. Preached with that thing. I was so excited about it, right? Get home. Ryan bumps into my cup of coffee. If you know anything about me, I've always got a cup of coffee. Ryan bumps into my cup of coffee. Cup of coffee spills all over the pages of my Bible, right? I go off. I lose it, right? It's my new Bible. What are you doing? He's like four, you know? He didn't mean to do it, you know? I'm like, what are you doing? This is my new copy of Scripture, son. This is God's Word, right? Coffee spilled all over the pages. If you hold it sideways and look, it's all over the pages. Deliverance got spilled all over the pages of Scripture when God wrote it. Why? Because that's what he's about. That's what he's about. That's who he is. It's hard to miss. God reveals himself to his people because he is for his people. You weren't created, and I, were not, I was not created for us to live in bondage to sin. We were created to live in freedom and fellowship in a right relationship with God. So what scripture teaches us is this. You and I, every day, not when I was 10 and got saved, but today, right now, and tomorrow, I need a deliverer. You need a deliverer. If you don't think you need a deliverer, then you're in bad need of a deliverer. Romans 7, 24, Paul says, this is the apostle Paul. Come on, this guy wrote 13 books of the Bible. 
And he says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. God revealed himself through his son Jesus to us so that we might know just how good he is and how much he loves us. That's why God reveals himself. That's why when God showed up in the desert, he says to Moses, this is who I am. Because who I am is going to carry you through the hard days, son. So here's the question. You're like, so what? What do I need to do now? What do I walk out of here with? You guys remember the TV show, Lassie? You remember that? If I can stop smiling, I'm going to try to whistle it for you. No, I can't. All right. I'll do that some other time. I can't do it when I'm smiling. All right. Lassie, I started whistling today, and Adrian knew what it was. Lassie had the same plot every stinking time, and we still tuned in. At least until you got to 14, you're like, it's not cool to watch a dog and his little buddy anymore, right? Timmy goes running off into the, the same woods or like the old mine shaft or his grandpa's shed or something, and there's always a hole, right? And Timmy always falls down into what? The stinking hole. It's like, kid, cover it up. Like, you know it's there. You fell in it yesterday at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Come on, man. And Timmy falls down in this hole. And what happens? Lassie comes running. She goes and gets the farmer. The farmer comes back. He drops the rope down. And what does Timmy do? He crosses his arms. He pooches out his lips. And he goes, no. No, that's not what happens. They pull him out. They rescue him. Lassie gets pet on the head and given some Alpo or something like that, you know, or whatever high brand dog food there is. And, and like, Lassie gets celebrated as the hero. Okay? Here's what you need to realize. As silly as it sounds, you need to realize because of the sin that you were born into and the sin you did five minutes ago while I've been sitting here preaching or the sin you did this morning while you were drinking your coffee cup or the sin, whatever it is, the sin that you have in your life has gotten you down in the same hole that you were in yesterday at 4 o'clock. We laugh at Timmy, but guess what? We wind up in the same hole, don't we? Same thing. How did I get there? Well, did it yesterday, right? You think I get this right? Who's going to deliver us? It's not Lassie. It's Jesus Christ. And he didn't throw down a rope and say, hey, hang on, I'm going to pull you way up there. If you hold on long enough, then you're with me. You're good. No, he says, I'm coming down to seek and to save the lost. And so you've got two options tonight. First of all, you've got to realize you're in the hole. Here's your two options. One, you reach out and you take the rope. Better yet, You climb on the back of the real superhero who spread out his arms and he didn't fly. He actually got raised up on wood on the cross, put nails through his hand and then laid down in the dirt and God raised him to life. You get on the back of that superhero and guess what? Then you say, okay, now I am saved. And you glory in that because that's the only good lasting thing we have in this world. And if that's you tonight, because I know most of you people in here. All right, I know most of you have given your life to Christ. You've been walking with Jesus long, and I've been living. That's fine. Let me ask you a question. Are you glorying in your salvation? Are you working it out? Did God pull you out of the hole only for you to look at him like the leper and go, oh, don't need you now. I'm good. I'm out of the hole, and you walk off. Or when God says, climb on my back, I've come down to deliver you, and I'm pulling you out of the hole. When he sets you down on the good and broad land and this world's over and it's flowing with milk and honey and we're in the presence of perfection and holiness, you're going to turn around and put your arms around his neck and go, come here, I need to give you a big hug. Because you did something for me that I could not do. You came down to deliver me. You revealed your heart to me when I was 10 years old at vacation Bible school or kids camp to show me that your heart was for me. That's the God we serve. 
That's the God we worship. If that's not the God you know tonight, and the God you know is moralism, legalism, rules, tradition, folk religion, mom and dad's faith, you need to sell it tonight. And then you need to turn around after he rests you, give him a hug and say, I can't, I can't, words just won't even express what you've done for me. He's the God who reveals his heart to us because his heart is for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come tonight just thankful that we can come. Just thankful that we're allowed to be here and be called your people. We're thankful for what you've done for us through Jesus Christ. We're thankful that you came down in Exodus 3 and in the early part of the New Testament to deliver us out of the hand of our oppressive taskmaster, the evil one, the father of lies, the accuser, Satan himself. Scripture says that I was on his side before you came into enemy territory, put me on your back, and you took me home. And all I can do tonight is say thank you. And as we come around this table in a minute, all I can do is just say, man, this bread, this cup that I'm holding, my goodness, I'm not worthy to even hold these symbols that were bought at the grocery store today because they represent something so precious that was given for me to give me a hope and a future and bring me into a good broad land that I had no right to set my foot upon. God, you are so good. You are so captivating. You are so holy. But Lord, help us to see it. Turn our hearts back to you. God, do an awakening in the life of each person in this room, no matter how close they think they are to you, God. I pray you just pull us even closer. Pull us on your lap, God, and let us talk to you, Lord. Let us hear from you. Lead us. Guide us. Correct us. Train us. Build us up, Lord. Send us out. Use us. Father, thank you that when we were at the last We were the last item to get picked up in the yard sale. We were the one nobody else wanted. You came along and you said, nope, that one right there is mine. And you have repurposed each person in this life who is under the blood of Christ to be used for your kingdom and your glory. Lord, if we could right now, we'd hug your neck. And one day in heaven we will. In your name we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.